People are so energized about what's happening in Gaza and they feel helpless that we could see a large number of folks coming out. After success in Michigan, a primary vote protest against President Biden's Israel policies is spreading to other states. For Saturday, March 2nd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. A Supreme Court decision this week means there's a good chance former President Donald Trump's federal election interference case may not conclude until after this year's presidential election. The fact that they're dragging this out is really a travesty. It's going to hurt the legitimacy of the court itself. We'll check in on the presidential campaign underway in Mexico as well. And we'll also hear about the search for life elsewhere in the solar system. Worlds like Europa and that harbor Liquid water oceans are incredibly compelling from the standpoint of our search for life beyond Earth. All that and more after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. U.S. aircraft have dropped bundles of food aid into Gaza one day after President Biden made the order, saying innocent lives are on the line and pressing Israel to let more aid in. NPR's Tom Bowman has more. Three C-130 cargo planes dropped 66 bundles of aid into southwest Gaza, finding open areas along the coast away from desperate civilians. The bundles included some 38,000 culturally appropriate meals, said a U.S. official. There are no immediate plans for more aid drops, though the official said there's potential for follow-on aid. Jordan and France have already carried out airdrops of aid into Gaza. Humanitarian officials have warned that Gaza is on the verge of famine because not enough aid is getting into the enclave. Israel has been pressed for months by the U.S. to open more border crossings and allowed more aid trucks in. But fewer than 100 trucks are getting in each day, compared to 500 before the war began in October. Tom Bowman, NPR News. The Department of Education says it's investigating an Oklahoma school district after the death of a non-binary student prompted demonstrations across the country. Max Bryant with member station KWGS has more. Officials said the department's Office of Civil Rights is investigating whether Owasso Public Schools responded to sex-based harassment in compliance with Title IX and the Americans with Disabilities Act. The letter was in response to a complaint filed by the advocacy group following the death of Nex Benedict, a non-binary 16-year-old Owasso High School student who died in February the day after a fight with three girls in a school bathroom. While police have said Benedict didn't die of trauma, the final autopsy report has not been released. A district spokesperson said Friday evening that they will cooperate with the investigation, but believes human rights campaign's complaint is, quote, not supported by the facts, and is without merit. For NPR News, I'm Max Bryan in Tulsa. A dangerous winter storm with heavy snow, strong gusty winds, and rain is pummeling the west coast, with 10 to 12 feet of snow possible in parts of the Sierra Nevada. The storm has forced the closure of Yosemite National Park and a 50-mile stretch of I-80, a major interstate. The Lake Tahoe area is being hit hard, more than a dozen ski resorts have closed, including Palisades Tahoe. Truckee Emergency Service Manager Robert Womack. We get snow. I mean, this is normal. We get a lot of snow, uh, but we don't get blizzard conditions. We don't get conditions where you can't see while you're driving. Uh, we don't get conditions where if somebody were to walk out of their house down to the street, be uh, completely disoriented and not know how to get back to their house. The storm has knocked out power to about 60,000 customers in both states. The National Weather Service issued blizzard and winter storm warnings for parts of California and Nevada. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A coalition that opposes President Biden's handling of Israel's war against Hamas is trying to organize a protest vote for Tuesday's Massachusetts primary. Organizer Mary Najimy says the coalition is inspired by the 13 percent of Michigan's Democratic voters who checked uncommitted on their ballots in the primary. We were beginning to think about writing in ceasefire and then the unprecedented success of Michigan really spread like wildfire here in Massachusetts. So now there's a huge momentum to get everyone across the state to link our protest vote to Michigan. The Massachusetts coalition is urging voters who oppose Biden's support for Israel to write in uncommitted on the Democratic ballot. The city of Newton is tightening restrictions on takeout orders. Restaurants will no longer automatically include single-use items like forks, knives, napkins, or condiments when they dine out. Customers will need to specifically request these items or pick them up inside the restaurant. Takeout containers must also be reusable, compostable, or recyclable. There's an effort underway on Cape Cod to expand the number of places that drivers can charge their electric vehicles. The Barnstable County Assembly of Delegates is calling on state and federal lawmakers to direct funds to the region for more fast-charging stations. East Ham Delegate Terry Gallagher says visitors who drive to the Cape need to be accommodated to help the tourism industry. People show up with their batteries empty. They want to be able to charge in 30 minutes and not a couple of hours. We need the fast chargers. It's past time to start attracting money to build these. Fast chargers can charge an electric vehicle battery in 30 minutes compared to other chargers that can take several hours. In a highly anticipated sign of spring, Sullivan's on Castle Island opened its doors this morning. The South Boston takeout stand is known for its hot dogs, seafood, and other treats. Sully's has been in business since 1951, operated by the same family for generations. It's 42 degrees at 506. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Earlier today, the U.S. military began airdropping food over Gaza, where food security experts say more than half a million people are facing severe hunger. U.N. officials have warned that without a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war, famine in Gaza is, quote, almost inevitable. The push for a permanent ceasefire spurred many voters in Michigan's Democratic primary to vote uncommitted earlier this week. And that was meant as a warning to President Biden's re-election campaign over his ongoing support for Israel's war against Hamas. Activists are hoping to send a similar message in Minnesota, which, hold it, which holds its presidential primaries on Tuesday. Minnesota Public Radio's Clay Masters reports. It's Friday prayer at the Carmel Mosque in a Somali-American neighborhood in Minneapolis. The service ends and local activist Jaylani Hussein takes the microphone. He tells the hundreds gathered about how large numbers of voters protested at the ballot box not too far from here in Michigan. He encourages them to do the same and meets with a few people afterwards. Like Michigan, Minnesota has an option for uncommitted on Democrats' presidential primary ballot on Super Tuesday. And like some areas of Michigan, the Twin Cities have a significant population of Muslim voters. Many, like Hussein, are Somali-American. 
Hussein says his group Uncommitted Minnesota is doing a number of get out the vote efforts this weekend. People are so energized about what is happening in Gaza and they feel helpless that this vote could be something we could see a large number of folks coming out. On Thursday night, people from across the country joined a conference call to hear from members of the group Listen to Michigan that kicked off that state's protest vote. Y'all, Michigan had three weeks. Minnesota now has four and a half days. That's Asma Mohammed. She's also a member of Uncommitted Minnesota, who was on the call encouraging people to volunteer. If you have not signed up for a ship, sign up for two. If you've signed up for two, sign up for another. We need you. In this moment, we need every single person making calls every single day until the polls close. Organizers see Tuesday's primary vote as an important moment to give greater voice to their community and call for a permanent ceasefire. And that push is spilling into the most local levels. In St. Paul, tensions grew this week when the city council president, Mitra Jalali, gaveled out of a meeting packed with protesters, just as council member Nelsie Yang tried to introduce a ceasefire resolution. I will personally uh, chat with any constituents who want to connect with me, and with that, we are adjourned. President Jalali, I have, I have an item to put on. To we we just, I'm sorry, we just adjourned, Ms. Yang. I'm happy to talk to you about it, though. You, no, I think that's The other council members walked out, and Yang stuck around to talk with protesters and reporters. I am determined to find out a way to get it on the agenda, and if in the end it doesn't work out, then you know what? It's not on me. It's on my colleagues, and that's the public risk that they have to take. Both Yang and Jalali say they're voting uncommitted on Tuesday. But Jalali says the process in which Yang went about raising the issue is not in line with city council rules. In a state that helped Biden secure his party's nomination four years ago, some Democrats here don't want him to take their vote for granted. Ken Martin is the local Democratic Party chair and says his party is not mobilizing against the effort. He just wants voters to show up. I will tell you that that vote was relatively small in Michigan last week. I expect it to be even smaller here in Minnesota uh, next Tuesday. Uh, if you look at the primary results throughout the country, uh, the overwhelming of Democratic primary voters uh, already are behind our president. I, he will be our nominee for sure. Martin says the president is listening, but he suspects those uncommitted voters will come back around in the fall when they're likely choosing between President Biden and former President Donald Trump. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Minneapolis. It's time for Trump's trials. We love Trump. We love Trump. This is a persecution. He actually just stormed out of the courtroom. Innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. It was another eventful week in the world of Trump's trials. The U.S. Supreme Court decided to take up the question of whether or not former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for alleged crimes committed while in office. The court will hear arguments in late April. A ruling, however, might not come until June, which means the January 6th federal election interference case may not go to trial before the presidential election later this year. Meanwhile, there was a pretrial hearing on Friday in the Florida classified documents case, and a lot of important issues were discussed, including pushing back the start date. So far, Judge Eileen Cannon has not officially done so. Still, it's pretty unlikely that they will stick to that May start date that's still on paper. Earlier, I spoke with my colleague, senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, as well as law professor Kim Whaley about all of this. And I started by asking Whaley for her take on why the classified documents case has been moving slower than expected. One legitimate reason and one probably less legitimate possible reason, the legitimate reason being that this involves classified information 
and there is a federal law um, called the Classified Information Procedures Act, or SEPA, that has a bunch of procedural steps that have to be implemented and followed to make sure that national security and classified information doesn't get inadvertently disclosed during a criminal trial. And in this particular trial, given that the one of the, the defendants is Donald Trump and he has a penchant um, for using the his social media um, voice to bully witnesses, members of uh, the court staff, etc. I think there's a heightened concern on DOJ's side to make sure that this case about stealing classified information doesn't involve more disclosure of classified information. So that's taken some time. The, I think, less um, favorable view of things in terms of this particular judge, who is a Trump appointee, is that she's slow walking it for the benefit of the of Donald Trump uh, and unnecessarily just putting up procedural roadblocks because with all of these cases, in particular two federal cases, Donald Trump's best friend is delay, 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 um, because on the merits, that is the facts and the law, uh, his case is pretty weak. So, Kim, let's shift to the bigger, I think more consequential delay from this week, and that is the Supreme Court uh, hearing arguments on this big question of immunity. Look, a lot of people saw that appeals court decision on immunity as as pretty substantial, as pretty airtight. It seems like there's a lot of arguments that if it were any other question, the Supreme Court would have let that ruling stand. Why do you think the Supreme Court decided to take this up? You know, I wasn't one of the people that thought, oh, they won't touch it Mm -hmm. Um, for, again, one legitimate reason and one less legitimate reason. It's a theme. Um, <laughs> the legitimate reason is that there is no precedent whatsoever for immunity for presidents for criminal liability. And so I think what the court might be interested in doing, and it looks like from the question presented, a very broad question they put in their order saying, you know, is there immunity, criminal immunity for presidents? They might want to tinker with the boundaries of that on the theory that we don't want a situation where presidents order drone strikes, someone, an American's inadvertently killed, and then presidents are worried they're going to be criminally prosecuted by a president from the other political party when they're a private citizen. The sort of less nice reason for this is that the, the, the conservatives on the court are slow walking this. The fact that they're dragging this out is really a travesty. It's going to hurt, and it should hurt, frankly, uh, the legitimacy of the court itself. They don't need to do this, and they could be, you know, basically thwarting the ability of the American people to get a ruling by a jury on the merits beyond a reasonable doubt based on facts that get through, you know, the the gatekeepers of the federal rules of evidence, the gold standard fact finding, um, where a third of, you know, Iowa voters said, Republican voters, if, if he gets convicted of a felony, I will not pull the lever for him in November. The fact that they're possibly denying that the American public is really a travesty. I just have a hard time seeing the Supreme Court not thinking about the election timeline and what it would mean to have this question unresolved before voters decide. I just have a very hard time seeing that not being a top of mind question. We're going to have essentially, if there's even a trial in these in these cases, right in the heart of the general election, which Trump's lawyers are going to argue and have already signaled they're going to argue that that's election interference, that you can't have a trial that close to an election and that that's the problem. But now, at even the though same, they're the ones trying to no, I'm, I'm right. Yeah. This is their yeah. fault. I mean, I would argue that this is the Trump team's fault for doing this because they're trying to push this case over the edge. They could have had a trial, you know, 
months ago if they wanted a quote-unquote speedy trial, which is one that's there for a defendant, not necessarily for the rest of us who want to see a speedy trial. Yeah. But let's talk about, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas. You know, his wife texted Mark Meadows over two dozen times during the January 6th riot and, you know, reportedly was pushing for him to to get by Vice President Mike Pence to, to thwart the election results. This is a person who is going to be, is now currently deciding whether the case goes forward against Donald Trump in a meaningful way or whether it's dragged beyond November so he could cancel the whole thing if he's in charge of the Justice Department. I mean, that's an actual conflict of interest in the theory that is he trying, you know, worst case scenario to protect his wife. Right now, now Thomas, you know, did not recuse himself from the case the court recently heard about whether or not states can can kick Trump off the ballot for engaging in insurrection. He has given no indication he would recuse himself from here. Domenico, we were talking about this, though, the other day, and you had an interesting pushback on this this Thomas question. Well, I mean, look, there's certainly a question about whether it's appropriate uh, for Thomas to be on this case, given how intimately involved you know, his wife was in these efforts and communications about overturning the election. I mean, on the other hand, she's not her husband, right? And we haven't seen texts involving him. And, you know, frankly, if everyone in D.C. was responsible for what their spouse does, no one will go to work, probably, because it's such a tight-knit place. I understand what the what the pushback here is, but I think that that's what the other side of the argument is when it comes to this. That's Kim Whaley, a constitutional expert and law professor at the University of Baltimore. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Domenico Montanaro, thanks, as always, for hanging out on a Saturday. As always, always fun. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Thirst. Two Irish immigrants search for a place to call home in this drama by Ronan Noon, now through March 17th. LyricStage.com. And we hope you'll stay with us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs until 8. Tomorrow night at 9, you can listen to a new program, Embodied explores what happens when we bring rarely discussed topics into the open, relationships, health, intimacy, and sex. Embodied starts at 9 tomorrow night on the radio and the WBUR app. Listeners have the opportunity to attend open meetings of the WBUR Board of Directors and Community Advisory Board. Visit WBUR.org slash open meetings if you'd like to find out more. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. A fierce winter storm is slamming parts of California and Nevada this weekend, with up to 12 feet of snow possible in the Sierra Nevada. The National Weather Service issued blizzard and winter storm warnings for parts of California and Nevada. Several ski resorts in Lake Tahoe are closed, as is a 50-mile stretch of I-80. Thousands of customers are without power. The families of some of the Israeli hostages taken in October by Hamas completed a four-day march to Jerusalem today, calling attention to the roughly 134 hostages still held in captivity. And a ship attacked by Houthi rebels some two weeks ago has sunk in the Red Sea after taking on water. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Are we alone? It is one of the universe's biggest questions. And as my co-host Mary Louise Kelly found out, the answer could be in our own cosmic backyard. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, has long intrigued scientists with its rich stew of organic compounds, the building blocks of life. The moon has also captivated science fiction writers. You can see its thick orange atmosphere rolling off the USS Enterprise in Star Trek. And Titan is the homeworld of Marvel supervillain Thanos. Titan was like most planets. Too many mounds, not enough to go around. Okay, but Titan is not the only moon that scientists are eager to explore. They also have their sights on the underground oceans of Jupiter's moon Europa. And NASA has upcoming missions to both moons. Here to talk more about them are Catherine Nish, professor at Western University in Canada. She is on the team for NASA's Dragonfly mission. It's going to head to Titan in 2028. And Kevin Hand, who directs the Ocean Worlds Lab, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. He is also working on Dragonfly and the Europa Clipper spacecraft, which is blasting off in October. Welcome to you both. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Um, Kevin, I'm going to let you kick us off with this mission to Europa since that is coming right up in the fall. This moon has a salty ocean that is locked under a shell of ice. Describe it. What else can you tell me about it? Yeah, that's right, Mary Louise. Uh, Europa has this ocean of salty liquid water beneath this ice shell that's about maybe 10 or so kilometers in thickness. We really don't know. And if we've learned anything from life on Earth, it's that where you find the liquid water, you generally find life. And so worlds like Europa and that harbor liquid water oceans out there in our solar system today these worlds are incredibly compelling from the standpoint of our search for life beyond Earth. Even if they're under, you just described, kilometers of ice on top. That's a lot of ice. <laughs> That's right. These, these are dark oceans. And so photosynthesis, uh, as we know it here on the surface of the Earth, is probably not really a viable energy pathway. Instead, if there is life in these oceans, uh, it's probably sustained through chemical reactions that can power life, similar perhaps to what we see in the deep, dark depths of our own ocean, places like hydrothermal vents where microbes and other organisms just chew away night and day without any knowledge of the sun above. Mm. And one more to you, Kevin, because I'm told engineers have just finished loading the scientific instruments onto the Europa Clipper in preparation to launch. What specifically are y'all going to be looking for? You get there in 2030, is that right? Yeah, about that time frame, it launches, uh, knock on wood, in October. And once the spacecraft is there, the payload is designed to assess the habitability of Europa. 
It'll have cameras that can take images of the surface, spectrometers to tell us about the chemistry of the surface and any materials coming off of the moon. And then we've also got an ice penetrating radar that will allow us to to see within the ice and potentially even to the ocean below. <sighs> okay, Catherine, jump in here because I want to turn to this other really intriguing moon. This is Titan, Saturn's moon. It might also have a subsurface water ocean like Europa, but I'm told it also has seas of liquid hydrocarbons, things like methane on the surface. Help me picture that. That's right. Titan is unlike any icy world in the outer solar system because unlike most icy worlds, it has an atmosphere. Um, an atmosphere that's not dissimilar to Earth's, made primarily of nitrogen, but it also has methane. And at the low temperatures that we find on Titan, uh, that methane can actually act as a liquid. So we see lakes, we see streams, we see all the same erosional patterns we see on Earth. It's just the materials are all different. Hmm. So the Dragonfly mission, um, which I gather if all goes well, will arrive and start hopscotching around the surface of Titan in the mid-2030s. What are you hoping specifically to learn? One thing we think is happening on Titan is that the organics that are formed in its atmosphere because of the presence of nitrogen and methane um, rain down on the surface. And then once they're on the surface, they can mix with these transient liquid water environments we think are there in the bottom of impact craters. And if you mix those two ingredients, carbon containing compounds and water, that's very similar to what we think the origins of life look like on Earth. So we're really hoping to see maybe the, the starting point of life happening on the surface of Titan, which we can then sample with Dragonfly. So this prompts a question to both of you because you've both been describing on two different moons conditions that possibly could support life, but it sounds like very different conditions, totally different than we have here on Earth. Does that mean there's the possibility that these seas would support life as we don't know it, life that looks nothing like what we would recognize as life here on Earth? So that's certainly true for the uh, methane oceans on Titan. If there is any life there, it is going to be completely different than what we see on Earth, because unlike life on Earth, which uses water as a solvent, if there was life in the oceans on Titan, uh, that would be, use methane as a solvent. So completely different. Um, and, and I'm not even sure we're clever enough to, to search for that life. It would be so alien to us. That's the thing. Like, would we even know if we found it? If that it is a concern so of mine, for sure. Kevin, what do you think? Life as we know it, life as we don't know it, would we even know it if we find it? <laughs> yeah, well, um, part of the way that these spacecraft and the, the instrument payloads are designed is to have the opportunity for discovery-driven science, finding things that we can't really predict are out there. And Titan is just such a wonderful world in this context because, like Catherine said, it's a, it's a great place for life unlike life as we know it. I mean, I suppose this prompts me to ask how hopeful either of you are. It, my editors here are reminding me that we've been hunting for life elsewhere in the solar system for decades. They, they were reminding me back in the 1970s, the Viking 1 and 2 missions landing on Mars. Has Have all of the intervening years tempered your expectations at all about our ability to find life elsewhere in the solar system? Kevin, you first. Um, well, I guess first I'll say this business is not for the faint of heart. It's a, it's a generational endeavor. And while we have been exploring the solar system for roughly 60 years or so, we really have not sent that many spacecraft uh, beyond the asteroid belt. And so this type of exploration is really just beginning. 
Catherine? I think if we're going to find life anywhere, it's going to be within our own solar system. And this is the whole reason I became a planetary scientist. However, in the 20 years I've been in this field, I think I've become a little bit more pessimistic about our options here. Um, and that's because in addition to water, which Kevin has brought up, life also needs carbon. And in so many places in the solar system, we find one or the other, but not both. So we really need to focus on those areas where we have all the ingredients you need for life together in the same environment. And I'm hopeful we can um, find those environments, but I think they're not as numerous as I originally hoped. We'll leave it there on a note of, of cautious optimism. Uh, that is Catherine Niche of Western University in Canada. And Kevin Hand, director of JPL's Ocean Worlds Lab. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Meanwhile, back here on Earth... As spring approaches, America's ice climbing season is winding down. Ice climbing is an alpine sport whose aficionados use ropes and other specialized equipment to scale frozen waterfalls or cliffs. It is a sport that is technical, cold, and sometimes dangerous, and it's those challenges that draw some disabled people to take it on. Laura Palmisano with member station KVNF reports from Lake City, Colorado. The tiny Rocky Mountain town of Lake City has its own ice park. The town showers water over cliffs when temperatures are cold enough for ice to form, creating what looks like chandeliers suspended on the rocks above a frozen creek bed. People climb these ice walls using ice axes and spiked boots. The park is busy today. Dozens of climbers are here for the town's annual ice festival, like 29-year-old Derek Reamer, a software engineer from Louisville, Colorado. I ski a lot, so I have to balance ice climbing with skiing, but it's a really fun thing to do in the winter. Bremer decided to try the sport last year because he likes to rock climb, and it seemed like a natural progression. Reamer is blind. He says he likes ice climbing because it's a new challenge. Ice is very tactile. You kind of can feel what's convex and concave with the ends of the tool because they're such a sharp point. It doesn't require a ton of visuals at all. There's a lot of feel involved. Reamer is on a guided ice climbing trip today with Paradox Sports, a Boulder-based nonprofit that helps disabled people go climbing. Guide David Egan quotes one of his organization's founders. Show me what you got and we'll go from there. So if I need to figure out how to get your tool onto your arm that doesn't have full function, we'll figure that out. If someone has, they're in a chair, we'll figure out how they can use their arms more. Egan says outside of the guardrails of safety, Everything in adaptive climbing becomes creative, and the point is to have fun. We want them to walk away, wheel away, crutch away, any way they go away with something accomplished. You know, it's all about empowerment. Climber Katie Nelson, who's 33, suffered a spinal cord injury falling through a set of stairs in 2021. I was really fortunate that my injury is considered an incomplete spinal cord injury, so I have minimal paralysis. Nelson was a rock climber before her injury, and she helped disabled people learn that sport. Climbing helped her recover, she says. And last year they finally conned me into ice climbing and I immediately fell in love with it. Nelson credits the adaptive climbing community for helping her return to the sport she loves. Because I really, really wanted to get back outside and out doing the things that made my heart happy, I had that extra motivation to really you know, do my PT, my homework, and, and all that work that came with it. Nelson says her biggest takeaway has been to put her energy into what's most important to her. On this day, it's the community she found through ice climbing. For NPR News, I'm Laura Palmisano in Lake City, Colorado. 
if this song reminds you of speeding over rolling green hills, fighting robots, and collecting gold rings, you already know hedgehogs. With his blue spikes and red sneakers, Sonic is arguably the world's most famous hedgehog. But in Britain, the hedgehog, and now we're talking about the actual animal, the hedgehog is a national icon. You could fit one in two hands quite easily. They're, they're very benign. They roll up into a ball when frightened, and they are the favorite wild animal in the United Kingdom. That's the ecologist Hugh Warwick of the Hedgehog Preservation Society. For me, the hedgehog is the most important creature on the planet, partly because it's a wild animal that you have an opportunity of getting close to. It doesn't run away because it doesn't attack you. It has no fight or flight response. It means that if you see one in your garden, you have an opportunity to look at this truly magnificent example of the natural world. Despite their special place in the hearts of Brits, hedgehog populations have been declining for years. But... A new survey has maybe brought some hope. According to a survey by BBC Gardener's World magazine, the percentage of gardeners spotting hedgehogs in their yard is up. 33% of respondents say they saw the creature in their garden last year. It's up from 31% the previous year. Not a cause for celebration just yet, Warwick says. I'm not quite at the point of ordering out marching bands and having bunting and streamers, but... You know, the having the sight of a leveling off in the population decline in suburbia is a good thing. The 2022 State of Britain's Hedgehogs report also found that the animal's urban and suburban populations might be stabilizing. The report notes that local conservation efforts and advocacy have been partially responsible, but Warwick says the picture is more bleak in rural areas where human activity is degrading hedgehog habitats. Hedgehog food, macroinvertebrates, the bigger bugs and beasts, the uh, worms and beetles, we've killed off that. But we've also chopped up their landscape into smaller and smaller pieces with busy roads and large open fields of intensive agriculture. Still, Warwick says the fact that people are even paying close enough attention to notice these small beasts is a good thing. That's the beginning of the journey. You've begun to pay attention, you're beginning to care, then maybe you'll start to garden in a wildlife-friendly manner. Warwick says that hedgehogs are generalists when it comes to survival. They're not super particular about the habitat they survive in. So... The hedgehog is acting very much like a canary in a coal mine. It's telling us something bad is happening. If the hedgehog can't survive, we should be really worried. Save a hedgehog, save the world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Here in the United States, we're looking ahead to Super Tuesday, but there's another big election happening south of the border. In Mexico, the campaign for president has now officially begun. Millions of Mexicans will go to the polls this June. NPR's Ader Peralta is in Mexico City, and he joins us now. Hey, Ader. Hey, Scott. So you've been out covering the campaign. What have you been seeing? Massive rallies uh, for both main candidates. Uh, yesterday, I was at the first official rally for Claudia Sheinbaum, who is leading in the polls. And the Zocalo, which is this huge square in the middle of Mexico City, was just overflowing with people. And I want to play for you a chant that we've heard in both of the campaigns and tells you an important part of this story. Let's listen. In Spanish is a gendered language. A male president would be a presidente. A female president would be a presidenta. And 
both of the two major candidates in this race are women. And that means that barring some miraculous, unexpected rise of a third party candidate, Mexico, which is a notoriously machista country, will have a woman president, una presidenta, for the first time in history. Um, wow. On the streets, people are selling dolls of the candidates. Many of the women I've talked to say, it's finally our time. It has finally come. Uh, and many of them are hopeful that someone who has had a similar experience to them might better understand their problems and might be able to fix them in a better way. All right. So this historic moment. But tell us a bit more about the candidates themselves. So both of these women were not politicians until later in their lives. And both of them are engineers. Xochitl Galvez is leading the opposition coalition, uh, and she has a rags-to-riches story. She was born in a little town, and as a, a girl, she would sell jello at the local market. She came to Mexico City, she became a computer engineer, and she was pulled into politics by a former president who asked her to deal with indigenous issues in Mexico. And on the other side, you have Claudia Sheinbaum. Her Jewish grandparents fled Bulgaria in Lithuania during World War II. They came to Mexico to seek refuge. She was born here and she became a renowned environmental engineer. She was pulled into politics by Mexico's current president and she became the mayor of Mexico City. And now if you look at the polls, she's the one to beat. Most polls give her a huge lead, some by as much as 20 points. And what are they both focusing on? I mean, there are a lot of global trends in politics mm -hmm. right now. I'm guessing a lot of the things you're hearing and voters in Mexico are hearing are similar to what Americans are hearing from candidates right now. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about security and about the economy. Uh, Xochitl Galvez, for example, opened her campaign at midnight in Fresnillo, Zacatecas, uh, which is a small town that has been terrorized by cartel violence. And that violence is a big deal here. There's been a spate of assassinations of local officials and candidates, and the deaths from the cartel violence just don't seem to stop. So the theme of the Xochitl Galvez campaign is a Mexico without fear. Galvez promised to build a mass new prison saying, quote, there will be no more hugs for criminals. The law will be the law. Claudia Sheinbaum, on the other hand, focused a lot on the social programs that have made the current president incredibly popular. She promised universal pre-kindergarten. She promised more college scholarships. She promised uh, that her government would continue raising the minimum wage. And she focused on the poor. She used the same refrain that President Andres Manuel López Obrador has used uh, during now what is his five plus years in power. For the good of the country, the poor come first. Now both candidates are crisscrossing the country and election day is June the 2nd. Ada Peralta reporting for us from Mexico City. Thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. This is NPR. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with 90.9 WBUR and for listening every day. The latest news is at the start of every hour. Wait, wait begins at 10 tomorrow morning. Keep listening. I'm Susan Levy. We occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, wbur.org. In about 20 minutes at 6, we hope you'll stay with us for the Moth Radio Hour. It runs until 8. 42 degrees at 539. Rain tonight, mostly cloudy tomorrow and Monday. And rain is likely on Tuesday.
WBUR supporters include Agora Cultural Architects, presenting the Puerto Rican comedy group Las Hevas from Teatro Breve, March 17th at Semmel Theater, tickets at boratix.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Pentagon says the U.S. and Jordan conducted a combined humanitarian aid drop of food to northern Gaza today. More deliveries are planned, including by water and land. Nearly 40,000 meals were delivered, but aid groups say the area is desperate for far more food, water and medicine. Vice President Kamala Harris plans to meet with Benny Gantz, a member of the Israeli War Cabinet, at the White House next week. And the National Transportation Safety Board is investigating a train derailment near Allentown, Pennsylvania. It happened today after three trains crashed, sending several rail cars down the banks of the Lehigh River. Officials say there are no reports of injuries or fuel spills so far. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. In November of last year, three college students were shot while visiting family in Burlington, Vermont. All three men, Hisham Awartani, Kanan Abdelhamid, and Tassin Ali Ahmed, are of Palestinian descent. And at the time of the attack, two of them were wearing the traditional Palestinian keffiyeh, a black and white scarf that's long been a marker of Palestinian identity. No hate crime charges have been filed against the suspected shooter, but for many Arab Americans, the attack was a reminder of anti-Palestinian sentiment in the U.S., and the men became symbols of Palestinian oppression and resistance closer to home. They were all hospitalized following the shooting. Kanan and Tassin made full physical recoveries and are returning to school, while Hisham received longer-term treatment for injuries that have left him paralyzed below the abdomen. A new series from WNYC's Notes from America with Kai Wright follows Hisham's journey as he recovers from his injuries and restarts classes at Brown University. Here's host Kai Wright. Hisham and his friends are unfortunately just three people on a list of Palestinians who have been attacked on U.S. soil since the war broke out. Just a few weeks ago, a Palestinian-American man was stabbed in Austin, Texas, while also wearing the traditional Palestinian scarf. And in the fall of 2023, just a week after Hamas's October 7th attack in Israel, a six-year-old named Wadia Al-Fayyum was killed near Chicago when his landlord broke into his family's home and stabbed Wadia and his mother. The attacker allegedly yelled anti-Palestinian rhetoric. Tonight, a gunman remains at large following the shooting of three college students in Burlington, Vermont, all of them of Palestinian descent. The night of that shooting, Hashem and his friends were out on a walk after a long day of just hanging out. We were walking along the sidewalk and a guy comes down from the balcony and like pulls out a gun and before I know what's happening, it's like I'm on the floor. I mean, I heard the gunshots, and I quite didn't quite understand it. But I didn't know that 
I had been hit until, like, I saw blood on my phone. And even with all the blood, it took a moment for the extent of that to sink in. When do you realize that you're also fairly injured? Um, when the EMT people come, mm, like, they tell me to move my legs, and I realize that I couldn't. Mm. What went through your mind when that happened? I, I didn't know what to think. I just didn't know why I couldn't. Our producer, Suzanne Gabber, has been spending time with Hisham. She was with him on his last day of inpatient therapy as he checked out of rehab and prepared to return to campus at Brown University and face a new reality as a reluctant symbol. Suzanne takes the story from here. Hey. Hello. I was just checking in to see Hisham or Tammy. Sixth floor. This is Suzanne. Hi, yeah, nice to you. For months, I had seen Hisham on TV. I'd seen how composed he and his friends were in the face of such a terrible trauma. And like a lot of us, I had created an image in my head of the person he might be. But when I walked in, I realized this was just a college kid, fascinated by history and excited to learn. Museum of Fine Arts. Like, owns up. Yeah, they participated in an excavation, like 1908 or something. I mean, I've always loved history. And archaeology, I feel like, is... Not a more objective take on history, but it's 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 just another way of looking at things. Mm. You know, in history, you often get lost in, in the big picture of, like, you know, King X declares war and whatever, or, like, larger political systems, whereas in archaeology, it's just it's more personal. It gives you a better idea of how people live their lives. How are you feeling? Good, okay. But instead of being in class, Hisham was in rehab. And for his last day... He asked to use a machine called a loco mat. How long is he going to do this for? Um, probably we'll go like 25 minutes. He's standing upright, being held up by a machine that pushes his body to move as though he's walking all on his own. And it really looks like he's walking. Hisham even moves his torso to mimic his normal walking motions. As he walks, Hisham is facing a full-length mirror, watching himself move. It was his favorite activity in rehab. And you can see it in the way that he looks at himself, walking in place, even while trying to focus on his new life in a wheelchair. I've gotten used to life like this, or I'm trying to get used to life like this, and what happens will happen. I've been following Hisham's story for a while. From his very first statement, just days after the attack, Hisham and his mom have used their newfound platform to advocate for a focus on Palestinians in Gaza. It was a decision they came to very quickly in part because Hisham has been able to process his own injuries at a speed that seems surprising for someone so young. It's not that necessarily like, okay, it's, I guess, one, just growing up in the West Bank and growing up under occupation, just growing up Palestinian in general, it's like, you learn fairly quickly that life is absurd and you'll get screwed over and, you know, you just have to suck it up and, like, keep moving forward. But also at the same time, I mean, like, in relation to that, it's like, if it kind of feels unfair for me to like sit around and feel bad about myself when much worse things are happening to other people, and it, I honestly, yeah, like it kind of feels like what I'm going through is like not that big of a deal. I can imagine even before this happened that this was like a very intense moment and an inflection point of feeling a lot of grief for other people. But I wonder, like, have you had then had space to? process this and, like, feel what comes with... Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've been trying to. 
but again, like, still not over. Yeah, that's true. You're still pretty early. And also, like, in Gaza, it's not over. Like, I'm getting treatment, but, like, if the same thing had happened to me there, I'd be, like, probably be carried around on a stretcher if you didn't. Is that a thing you've thought about a lot in this process? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, I'm very lucky. Last day! Mm-hmm. Bye. I'm so excited. I'm so excited <laughs> for you. I'm excited, too. I'm waiting with Hisham and his family at a rehab clinic in Boston for word that he's been discharged after two months of treatment and therapy. I'm leaving. I knew this is a moment he's wanted for a long time. And I also knew, on some level, he'd been thinking about what it meant to go back to school. Tonight, Brown University students grappling with the shooting of one of their own. Almost immediately after Hisham was shot, he'd become a symbol of Palestinian oppression and resistance for many at Brown University, where he goes to school. Brown Corporation is a scam, no others like Hisham! Brown Corporation is a scam, no others like Hisham! I don't like seeing my name plastered everywhere, but I uh, condone it in as much as using my name and my experience can elicit more of an emotional reaction people mm-hmm. and can get the point home. I mean, yeah, like it sucks to say, but like people here find it harder to empathize with people in Gaza than they would me. Why do you think that empathy is so different? Because, I mean, many different reasons. I think that Palestinians in Palestine are always, like the way that people excuse it is that they're always assumed to be a terrorist. And here it's just, it's it's absurd to use the same logic that the Israeli army uses on me. Because I'm like, I'm, I'm literally in like Burlington, Vermont. Like, you can't say he was trying to stab someone. You can't say he was part of a terrorist organization. Even though like in so many of the cases, like they'd shoot people like unarmed or walking away or, you know, doing nothing. And, but just because they say They provide the bare minimum of an an excuse. They get away with it. Over the last few years, Hisham has become involved with the Brown University divestment movement, the same one that has been using his name on campus in recent protests. They are calling for the school to divest from all companies linked to the Israeli military. They say the investments are supporting the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, where Hisham grew up. I think it's ridiculous that universities are invested in arms companies. But now that he's back at Brown, his activism is going to look a little different. Sounds like you kind of want a lower profile. You don't want to plan on being involved in that as much when you get back. I mean, more so like behind the scenes and such. Hisham says just the act of returning to school is part of that. Palestinians love education. There's very little mobility. I feel like people go to education to alleviate that. Yeah, it's, it's our way of resisting in a sense. I'm not going to let this break my stride. I'm going to keep walking forward. That was the first installment in the latest series from Notes from America. The podcast is following Brown University student Hisham Awartani as he processes the long-term effects of being shot. For more on his journey, listen to Notes from America from WNYC wherever you get your podcasts. The Oscars are just a week away, and you may have realized how excited we are for the big night March 10th. 
because for the past few weeks, we have been looking at the current slate of nominees and also talking about Oscars of years past. Clearly, we cannot get enough Oscars here on All Things Considered. But today, we're going to look at the nominees for Best Original Score, and one nominee should be familiar to any moviegoer. That is, of course, John Williams' immortal theme music for the Indiana Jones series. The 92-year-old composer received his 54th, that is 5-4, Oscar nomination for the fifth Indiana Jones film, Dial of Destiny. How does that score stack up with the other nominees, though? And more importantly, what makes for a good film score these days? So we called up, again, happy to do it, (laughs) NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour co-host Stephen Thompson. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Scott. Do you want to just, like, hop on an airplane or hop on a tank and punch a Nazi when you hear that theme music? I mean, always. Even if I don't hear that music. I mean, that kind of feels, on one hand, unfair to be nominated for a score for the same score you've been doing five times over the course (laughs) of decades and is maybe the most famous of all movie scores or is in the conversation. But, I mean, how how did... I mean, I know the movie itself got panned, but how did the score, do you think, uh, stand up against Williams' previous iconic work? Well, first, it's worth noting that he's not necessarily being nominated again for the original Indiana Jones score. The score, if you watch the movie, it it's occasionally using the original dun 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 as punctuation, mm-hmm. but it's almost entirely a new composition. He is the perfect person to step back and talk about the role of a movie score with before Mm -hmm. we go to some of the other nominees because so many people think of his music when you think of what a transformational movie score can do, and that is to emotionally cue you. The the, uh, the swelling music when they see the dinosaurs for the first time in Jurassic Park, you know? A good movie score is the movie in so many ways. A great score can elevate a movie in a million different ways. You know, the fact that his filmography contains the score to Schindler's List, the score to Jaws, the score to Indiana Jones, like those are tonally very, very different films. He has captured those emotions in music and he continues at 92 to make scores that are worthy of consideration for Oscars. That all being said, I don't think we can think of him as possibly the front runner in this contest. Let's talk about some of the other scores and and the role that they play in the movies that they were a part of. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom right now is that the the score that is likeliest to win is Ludwig Göransson's score for Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, which is also the frontrunner to win Best Picture, is such a classic Oscar Best Picture winner. It's a historical drama. The Oscars love historical dramas. Uh, It is an extremely well-made and well-told story. Uh, Christopher Nolan does a beautiful job with it, and it incorporates music in really impressive and dramatic ways. I don't know if six or eight months after seeing Oppenheimer the first time, I'm necessarily like humming the theme from Oppenheimer. But Ludwig Göransson, who won the Oscar for Black Panther, which is a score I do still summon in my brain all the time, he's doing marvelous work here. I mean, everybody's work in this film is really elevated. And I think this is likeliest to win, and I'm not going to complain when and if it does. Who are the other nominees we should be thinking about? And more importantly, who are the other nominees whose music has been stuck in your head since you've seen the movie? Well, my favorite score in this field we haven't even talked about yet, which is Jerskin Fendrix's score for for Poor Things.
Poor Things is a very weird movie. Uh, it is very polarizing. Some love it deeply. I'm one of those people. Some people hate it intensely. <laughs> um, and I, I understand where those people are coming from. And the world that this film is evoking is a very idiosyncratic place. It has a literal mad scientist. Um, it is a very, very strange film. And this score has the eccentricity to match and magnify that world. And so I really came away from this film loving the visuals, loving the acting, loving the just deep weirdness, but also just I loved marinating in the sound bed that Jerskin Fendrix creates. I'm loving the way film scoring has evolved somewhat from these kind of classic orchestral Hollywood productions to something that's coming from a place that isn't that classic movie score. Jerskin Fendrix has worked with art rock bands like Black Midi and Black Country New Road mm -hmm. that are very weird, very eccentric, very sprawling, very kind of abrasive. And he's taking some of those ideas and putting them into film scoring in ways that feel revolutionary to me. And I'll just point out that the composer Jerskin Fendrix is really young. He's only in his late 20s. Yeah. And Scott, by the way, just quickly, we haven't talked about the two other nominees. Yes. Robbie Robertson from the band is posthumously nominated for his work on Killers of the Flower Moon. That is a terrific score, a very versatile score for a very long film. And uh, Laura Karpman did the score for American Fiction. And that score has a lightness to it that really matches the film's tone. I loved the music in that film and I'm thrilled to see her nominated.